Hi everyone, this is Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday morning, as you guessed it, at 8am, where we distill the insights from the biggest business topics facing the world today. This is something we put together for our Insider and Slides members, but we make it available to everyone. If you would like to find this podcast, go into any podcast app and type in Strategy Skills. If you would like to get future newsletters, including any attachments or additional information we put together for the podcast, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash email and submit your details for free. If you would like previous episodes, as requested by our listeners and readers, we have the Strategy Insights book, which is an edited version of this podcast available on any Amazon website. So without any delays, let's get into the biggest topics that we're seeing in the news today. The first one is what I'm going to call analytics slash science versus management slash policy. And it's a huge topic of debate, whether it's related to COVID, climate change, and so on. I'm going to put this in context by giving an example of what I mean by this. So remember that everything I say that follows is relative. So relative to something, this is true. COVID-19, while it's had a tremendous disruptive effect on the global population, global commerce. In fact, it's affected everything as we know it. It has not been as bad, relatively speaking, as previous pandemics that have rippled through the global economy. We've handled it fairly well. And the question becomes, why did it become so bad? Is it because the science or the, the analytics was bad or because the decisions made were poor? And that's the insight we're going to tease out here. It's one thing to have the right science, the right analysis behind you. But what happens when you have that and you still make bad decisions? But let's put this in context as we continue. Let's look at the plague or Spanish influenza, which affected the United States to a substantial degree, but also most of the world around 1918. That pretty much put the globe on life support. With COVID-19, it was a little bit different. We knew something was happening in China around December 2019. I remember the day I saw the story in the Financial Times in January 2020 that things were getting out of hand in China. And then by November 2020, we already have the first signs of a vaccine coming out. It's a very rapid response. Some sectors were hit harder than others. Tourism went on to life support. Agriculture, on the other hand, did not suffer as much as we expected it to. And why is that? Because not many people work on farms anymore. Farming today is largely a mechanized process. Yields are up, the soil is protected and cared for, and we now use digital capabilities to run harvesters. We use science to know when to farm, how to farm, and how to treat the land. If you quarantine in a labor-intensive economy, whereby agriculture is driven by labor, and you tell all the farmers to stay at home, you have death, starvation, and no wages. But when you have machines doing all the work, none of that really happens. And that's one reason why we've seen sectors like agriculture thriving during the pandemic. People were not starving due to bad science in agriculture. They were starving due to bad decisions made by leaders in terms of how to get the products to them. Machines are doing the work. Much of the work has gone online, Most ships today are mechanized. A large super tanker or a large cargo vessel carrying thousands and thousands of containers can be run by a 20-man crew. 
The fewer ships that are moving, the fewer chances of a pathogen having an opportunity to move around. Everything's gone online, so how safe is the internet? But here's a question we have to ask ourselves, and this is a deep insight. We knew so much about the pandemic. We've got a vaccine out already. The world did not come to an end. The science worked. So why did so many people suffer? Was it because the science was poor or the business leaders making the decisions made unsound decisions? It's not a small point to make because if you think about it, in every business, in every organization, there's a group of people putting together the analysis. There's a group of people putting together the science, whether it's decisions on when to migrate the automotive industry to electric through legislation and incentives. Where there's decisions on whether a business needs to do X and Y, there's two parts to the coin. One is, what is the data? What is the science? What is the analysis? And the other part is, what are the decisions being made? And the glue that keeps it together is the person making the decision. So as you start thinking about decisions your business has to make, decisions your community has to make, we seem to be very obsessed about whether the science is right, whether the analysis is right. By and large, the science is usually right. The analysis is usually right. If you look at major corporate tragedies, traumas over the last 20, 30 years, if you look at what has happened even now with COVID-19 and you analyze a sequence of events, if there is some committee, congressional committee that analyzes it, it is very rare that no one knew what was going to happen. It is very rare that nobody saw the problem. It is very rare that the science was wrong and the analysis was wrong. Almost always, it's a situation whereby people know what's going to happen, but they make the decision due to conflicts of interest, competing interests, trying to please stakeholders, trying to be elected. They make decisions that don't support what the data is asking them to make. And the reason I mention this is because we have a lot of executive coaching clients, and I do find many of them want to get the analysis right. But I always tell them, as a leader, you're going to find that by and large, once you get to a level of about EVP, SVP, senior manager, and so on, you're not responsible for the analysis anymore. If you're a leader, it's almost unlikely you are doing the analysis yourself. That's how you know you're a leader. You have people doing that for you. So if you're sitting there and thinking, am I a leader or not? A leader of an organization, whatever role you are, is not the person doing the work. Sure, you can lead an analysis, but that's not a leader. That's a leader of an activity. So if it's not your job to do the analysis, it's your job to act on the analysis you're given. And what you've got to understand is that the difficulties you're going to face is not whether or not the numbers are correct. They're almost always going to be correct because you would have hired smart people. But it's how do you act on that and whether you can act on that. And that's the big insight here. That's maybe the biggest lesson we're seeing with COVID-19. Businesses that responded well, following what the science was telling them, did well. Businesses that did not respond to the science didn't do so well. Same for countries. And that is not just about COVID-19. That's about any decision you have to make. So as you think through how to be a better leader, the first thing you've got to think about is if I'm doing the work, when do you have time to lead? Second, more important insight is that you're almost always going to get the right information and it's going to come down to your ability to act on it and influence other key gatekeepers and decision makers in your organization act on the data in the way they should act. That's what you need to take out of this. The next big story, it's all over the news, is what I'm going to call the 
planning for unintended consequences. If you have been following the news, you know that there is a major semiconductor microchip shortage around the world. And it's an industry whereby planning takes place over many years. You can't really sync supply and demand on a monthly or yearly basis. So there's almost always too much supply or there's almost always too little supply. It's very, very rare when you get this uh, perfect matchup. What we're seeing happening here is a confluence of events. On the one hand, when COVID-19 came along, automakers who are major customers for advanced microchips felt that supply, felt that demand would drop and therefore they cut down on supplies, including procuring microchips. At the same time, electronics companies, whether they're making mobile phones and so on, decided that they need to stockpile semiconductors. And at the same time, we're seeing the digitization of the economy, whereby previously sectors that weren't using microchips are now using microchips. Whether it's in the agricultural sector, whether it's in home care, the world is becoming digitized. Now, there is obviously a difference between the level of complexity of the chips used in auto companies versus other industries. But the point is this, the capacity at the plants are largely fixed. So what you have is automakers lowering their demand forecasts and lowering their purchasing of chips at the same time that other industries are ramping up their stockpiling of chips. But more things are happening. For one, you have certain companies and countries being hit by legislation. And when they're hit by legislation or they're hit by tariffs or they're hit by some kind of a blacklist, they respond by stockpiling even more. So at the time when the auto companies were shutting down and ordering less, other companies were ordering more. While this was happening, SMIC, which is one of the largest Chinese chip fabricators, was again hit by a blacklist, which means that a large chunk of global supply of chips was taken offline. And then the world started opening up faster than anyone expected. So you've got companies stockpiling, you've got part of production offline, and you've got one of the biggest purchases of chips coming back online, which is auto companies. The natural order of events here means that things are not going to go well. And this is the principle of unintended consequences. When the decision was made to blacklist certain chip fabricators, we didn't really understand what ripple effect it would have across the value chain. But we can go even further. The principle of just-in-time delivery, which is used extensively in the automotive sector, meant that many automotive companies did not believe they needed to keep a large stockpile of chips on hand. So you have, again, the principle of unintended consequences rippling across from decisions made decades ago due to the changes in management processes. And the thing is that this is an industry where things are planned out years in advance. So it's not as if they can simply ramp up production. It's not possible for them to do that. The plants are already operating at close to full capacity. It reminds me of work I did previously in the copper industry, for example. If the demand of copper rises as it did when China was just taking off, you can't just bring a copper mine online in a week or a year. It takes a long time to do it. You're seeing the same problem here. So what's the big insight here? The big insight here is to think about how a decision you make is going to overlap and interact with decisions that are being made outside your control that affect your value chain. 
So as your company makes decisions, as you make decisions, you've got to think far down the line of the value chain to understand the interlocking sequence of decisions that will be made that sometimes force you into a position you don't want to be in. And I don't think automotive companies want to be in a position where they can't get production up, which means they don't have revenue coming in, which means they don't have profits coming in, at a time when they need to be spending billions of dollars fending off Silicon Valley, investing in AI, mobility, and electric. They're in a difficult position. And I wonder what decisions they would have made if they had been able to think about how all these decisions within their control and outside of their control would play off. Would they have still fought to keep the just-in-time model for semiconductor procurement? So how do best practices change as trends and decisions around you also change? And that's what you have to think about. The next big story, and I think everyone knows about this, I would say it's been going on for more than a few years, and that's the debate that's taking place over whether and how tech companies should compensate people or industries whose content they distribute. And here I'm going to use Facebook as an example. But before I get into the Facebook example, I'm going to talk you through the principle of what they did and why it's important to understand this principle. If we look at World War II, when Hitler's Germany launched a surprise attack on the Soviet Union, we can assume, like any military planner, that the Germans are making certain assumptions in what assets they will acquire once they conquer the parts of Russia they hope to conquer. If you think about how far Germany is from Russia, those supply lines, those supply chains to keep the German army fed, maintained, keep cars moving, keep horses fed and so on, it's quite a significantly, it's a significant piece of work. I mean, I wouldn't want to be the person running logistics and supply for any army in the world, especially one that is fighting a war. So the Germans make some assumptions. The one assumption they're going to make is that if the Russians withdraw, the Russians are going to withdraw on the assumption that they'll be able to retake the land eventually, right? When an army withdraws, they don't withdraw as a defeat. No, they withdraw, they fall back to a safe position, and they launch a counterattack. Now, when military planners look at this, they'll say, okay, if the Russians are going to withdraw, they're not going to burn everything and destroy everything because that would be killing themselves. No, they would leave the bulk of the infrastructure in place because if they ever launch a counteroffensive, there's not a lot of effort for them to rebuild it. It's already there. And the Germans are thinking, well, if, if we push the Russians hard enough and they fall back, even if the Russians think they're going to launch a counteroffensive, no, we can hold them in that position and use the existing Russian assets to push further into Russia and eventually conquer the whole of Russia. What Stalin did is he basically, uh, there's no nice way to say this, but he basically shot the hostages. The Soviet troops burned crops, destroyed bridges, evacuated factories in the face of the German advance. You must think about this. Entire steel and munitions plants were dismantled and shipped by rail to the east from the west. And those that, were, that could not be dismantled, things that could not be removed from the east were destroyed rather than handing it over to the Germans. The Soviets also destroyed and evacuated pretty much all of their rail stock. We call that rolling stock. And the reason why this was important is because if you look at the German railway track line and a um, Soviet railway track line, they use different gauges. Basically, that's the width over which the rail carriage sits. Now, if you destroy all of that, how do the Germans use their own carriages 
on a Soviet line, they cannot. So how do they move things along? And the principle here is that very few people are willing to destroy their own assets rather than give it to the enemy. And when you do that, you make it very clear what you're intending to do. What Facebook did is, you know, pretty much similar to what the Soviets did. Around the world, governments want tech companies to pay for moving content. The government of Australia basically told Facebook, we have something you need and want. It's of value to us. But basically, if you don't pay for it, we're going to roll out legislation whereby you don't have access to it. And the question became, what is the content worth? So what is Australian news content worth without the distribution muscle of a tech company? In this case, it's Facebook. And the thing is, nobody expected to find out because nobody expected someone was going to, for lack of a better word, shoot the hostages. But that's basically what Facebook did. They said, look, we think the service we offer is the value, and that's distribution. Without distribution, the news content is not worth that much. And the Australian government is saying, well, actually, no, the content's more important than distribution. So Facebook basically said, well, let's find out. And they called their bluff and they shut it down. Now, the Australian government has pretty much backtracked on all of the controversial legislative changes they wanted to make. Facebook won. And Facebook fought the battle on the relatively smaller Australian market. Because if Facebook had to do the same thing in the United States or the UK, Facebook would get hurt. But they're showing they're willing to take tough actions. So we need to find a way to work amicably in our largest market. It's about fighting the war on a smaller market before the crucial market comes to play. And Facebook does raise some valid points here. Because the tech industry is under a lot of pressure, but we have to analyze this very, very carefully. If Facebook has to pay for carrying news, let's ask the obvious question, who does it pay? Does it pay the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times because they're big and famous and they have lawyers? Or do you pay every single blog written by someone somewhere in his spare time just because Facebook and other tech companies carrying that piece of content? So who gets paid? And how do you decide who gets paid what? For example, is a longer article going to be paid more than a shorter article? Is a piece from the New York Times going to be paid more than a piece from Vogue? Is payment done by the number of articles carried, the number of clicks, the number of shares, engagement? Who gets to make those decisions? Because it sounds if you're one of the largest newspaper companies, you're going to have a seat at the table and everyone else is being pushed aside. So is this about saving media or is this about saving the largest media companies? And we don't know the answer, but it is an important question you have to ask yourself. But the biggest insight here is when you drive on the road, does the toll company pay you for the privilege of having your car on the road? Does Amazon pay you for the privilege of delivering your product? No, you pay Amazon and you pay the toll company. So if tech companies are distributors, if they're like a toll road, why are they not being paid? There's pros and cons on either side. The point is, it's not a defense of tech companies by any means. Monday morning, 8 a.m. is about thinking beyond the obvious. It's about asking difficult questions about the changes taking place. And by asking difficult questions, you can see how value shifts are going to occur. And you can think about how to position yourself and your business and your clients to take advantage of that. The question isn't what's happening with legislation today. The question is what is going to be the case in two years, three years, and four years when this legislation plays out? 
Where will value be in the tech sector? Where will value be in your sector when the legislation in your sector plays out? Why is the legislation on the table in the first place? Is it about saving an industry? Or is it about the biggest guys in that industry banding together to save themselves? Who has the power? Who will have the power? Who are the hostages that are going to be shot in your sector to prove a point? And how will that change the decisions being made? The next big topic we're seeing is understanding the true value of labor costs. And this stems from an article I saw in the Wall Street Journal, and I saw a similar one in, I think, the Financial Times as well. It's a common theme about the fact that due to COVID, many people have gone into podcasting. And I saw a piece about a, a lady, a nice enough lady, I went to her website, and she is paying a studio in New York $400 an hour to record, edit, and upload her podcast. Her podcasts make no money, but she's spending $400 an hour. Now, I'm not going to talk to whether she's doing the right or wrong thing. Only she knows that. And only she can make that decision because we don't know the benefit she's getting from it. But I do want to talk about how that $400 is derived and how you need to think about this. Imagine you have a surgeon in Beverly Hills who specializes in cosmetic surgery. He's going to charge a lot of money. Imagine you have a surgeon in Thailand, Bangkok, a country that is known for its medical uh, industry, doing cosmetic surgery. The odds are very, very high that the Thai surgeon is going to charge less than the Beverly Hills surgeon. But I think anyone who's ever seen the work from both regions will tell you that the work of Thai surgeons is amongst the best in the world. People fly from all over the world to do surgery in Thailand. So if the Thai surgeon, on average, is good as the Beverly Hills surgeons, and let's assume we're looking at the best surgeons in both places, the question becomes, why do they charge different amounts? You've got to understand how price is structured. So what is the value of the service versus the cost of the service? It's very different. Cost is heavily location-driven, which drives the labor cost. I mean, if you have a um, practice in Beverly Hills, off the bat, you're paying a lot more to lease or buy or rent, whatever it is, that location. Off the bat, you're spending a lot more for labor. Everything you use is going to cost a lot more because you're most likely sourcing it from within the United States or that region, whereby labor costs and everything else is expensive. And because everything is expensive, you've got to cover that cost. And then you've got to put your margin on top of it. So when you look at the prices of two things, you've got to strip out what is the cost part and what is the value part. So for example, to go back to the podcast example, if that company that was located in New York was located, let's assume, in the far northern snowy reaches of Canada, where everything's pretty cheap, and assuming they wanted the same margin, would they charge $400 per hour? Obviously not. They'd be charging a lot less. So when you look at how much someone is going to be charging you for anything, you've got to figure out how much of that cost is due to the fact that they're spending the money to give you a better service versus spending the money to cover bad choices they made in location, bad choices they made in hiring, bad choices they made in anything. It, it applies to any industry. I mean, for example, if a law firm or a consulting firm, for that matter, decides that, hey, you know what, to hire the best talent at Stanford, we're going to one-up our competition and pay a 20% premium on anything our competitors are charging or paying in terms of salary. That's a risk they take in terms of salary. Now, when they pass on that cost to their clients in terms of billable hour rates, the clients got to ask themselves, is that bet that the company made showing up in better value for me? And if the answer is no, then why would you hire that firm? 
should you pay for the decision that podcasting team made to be based in New York City? Because that's what you're paying for. Should you pay for, that, for the decision that surgeon made to be based in Beverly Hills? Eventually, the market does value itself correctly. So what do I mean by that? If you charge more than the value you are creating, initially, your customers are not going to be able to see it and they're going to pay you. But eventually, the market's very efficient. It always looks for what is the value you're getting. If someone else decides to offer the same service at a lower cost location but offers the same value to you, but because in a lower cost location offering the same value, they can charge less money to you, you'll obviously go with the lower cost location that offers the same value. That's how outsourcing came about. For a long time, people said there's no way Americans are ever going to take customer service help from anyone in a foreign country. And for a long time, companies banked on that. They would charge basically whatever cost they incurred to locate a call center in an expensive part of America, pay well-off salaries, which they would then pass over that cost to customers. Eventually, people realize, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm getting a great service by using a capability that is based in another country. That's how outsourcing works. The question you've got to ask yourself here is that, is your higher price that you charge, whether you're a business, whether you're a person, whether you're a company, due to better value or greater value to customers that you're creating or just bad or just due to bad cost decisions you've made now if the higher prices you're charging are due to bad cost decisions you have a problem it may not be a problem that manifests itself today or tomorrow but eventually someone's going to make a smarter cost decision in your industry and be able to make much more money by charging customers a lower price so bad cost decisions damage businesses should you base your startup in Silicon Valley? Everything's enormously expensive. And eventually what happens when you go after a Silicon Valley based company, because everything's so expensive, you have to go for a scale model because you need to get enormous scale to pay down the cost of doing everything. You've got to think about those decisions as you make them. The final piece I want to talk about is about leadership is really about leading yourself first. And as always, I want to help listeners and readers understand how to use these insights to transform the lives of their customers, to transform the lives of their colleagues, to transform their employers, but also to transform themselves. And I do want to celebrate examples of uh, executive coaching clients who have done some incredible things against great odds. So today I want to talk about uh, a client who was the executive vice president for strategy at a diversified conglomerate in the United States. And I've known that client over a very long time, something like seven years. They're about 38 years old. And in that seven years, they've grown up in the M&A side, strategy side of the business. So their entire business's strategy team, internal strategy team, was basically an M&A unit. All they did was deals. They would seek out deals, vet them, close them, integrate the acquisitions, and try to generate growth and get their business into new markets. And deal after deal after deal, not very transformative deals. They knew it. And they didn't want to do it anymore. But they didn't realize they were stuck in their careers. I mean, the client I had was doing very well. But I think the part that um, they missed is that when you go into an internal strategy role, when you, for example, run strategy for any company or you run M&A for any company, it's a transitory role. It's a stopping point in your career. You don't run strategy forever. You run it temporarily to maybe solve a problem for the company to show some skills and then you move to another location but if you 
are being told or you're being groomed to be in the M&A team forever or to be in the strategy unit forever, that's not a good sign for your career. So with this client, many rapid promotions over five years. But then in the last two years, based on the discussions I was having, it became clear to me that the company didn't see this person leaving the M&A unit because all of the work they were doing was to bolster the M&A capability, but there was never any talk about moving them out. And in fact, this client was talking to me with the expectation that they would be in M&A forever. And that's a good thing. And I told them, hold on a second. Your entire plan is for the next eight, 10 years to, to be part of the M&A unit and grow the M&A unit. But the strategic priorities of the business change. It may not be M&A in the future. It may be cost reduction. It may be shutting down some loss-making units. If you continuously developing the M&A capability, you're misinterpreting, firstly, what is the role of the strategy unit, which is to respond to whatever the problem is. And two, you're not doing yourself any favors with your career. But there's a bigger problem here as well. And the bigger problem was that um, the M&A team wasn't doing a very good job. So they had successfully acquired businesses, but those businesses were not making any transformative effect on the bottom line and diversification plan of the industrial conglomerate. Earnings were accretive, certainly, but nothing is really changing for the company. So you got a situation where they were doing a lot of deals that weren't working and the client's stuck in the same place and seems to be happy with it. So the, I went through a series of exercises with them. And the first thing I did with this client is I said, okay, let's step back for a second here and remember what you want to do in your life. You can't be running strategy forever. Nobody runs strategy forever. Well, some people do, but that's not what you want to do and you should not be doing that. So we need to get you out of strategy. You need to be running some part of the business and, and then rotate across the business. If you want to be CEO, you've got to run many parts of this business to be seen as someone who understands the business. So we're going to put a tick in the hat that you ran strategy, but you can't run strategy forever. You're not going to make it to the top. Next, I don't think you're running strategy correctly because your deals are not changing the business. I mean, I've known you for five years. What have your deals done to the business? Nothing. You do the deal, it fades away. The company is still earning 87% of its revenue and 91% of its EBITDA from its traditional businesses. So by any objective measure, you're not doing such a good job. But it goes deeper than that. You're not interpreting M&A correctly because M&A is not about market entry. And market entry is not about market entry. The company does not want to enter a market. They don't know that. They want the profits from a market. So what you've got to do is you've got to figure out ways for the company to diversify itself by extracting profits from a market without entering the market unless it absolutely has to enter a market. An example of that would be before buying an entire company in some far-off location, did you ever consider licensing some of your technology to that market so that you got the money from the market without entering the market with all of the risk that entails? The next thing we did is we looked at value chains. Each of the players in the markets they wanted to enter and we looked at how outsourcing could be done. There are certain skills that the company had that was far superior to competitors. So what if you took on some parts of the value chain in the markets you wanted to enter by having those companies outsource the work to you? That's a way of getting the profits from that market without entering the markets. You could have done joint ventures. There's licensing. 
There's many, many things you can do without entering the market. And the question becomes, why have you not done this? Why have you always entered the market? And clearly the market entry is not working because the results are very weak. Now this kind of thinking is very unusual in strategy, but it makes sense. Shouldn't you extract all of the profits from a market you can before you enter it? Clearly there's less risk involved, it's easier to do, and it's less costly. That kind of thinking is hard to teach people. But it's even harder for the management team to understand because no one thinks about market entry like that. So what I had the client do is I had them arrange a series of workshops for the executive team, not to tell them that M&A was wrong to just enter the market, but to say, hey, we're spending all this money entering a market. What if we set up a series of pilots to see how much money we can extract from a market without entering it? And only when we fully maximize that and we couldn't get any more money out without entering the market, then we enter the market. After those workshops, the CEO greenlit the idea of licensing some of the technology. The CEO greenlit the idea of focusing on getting parts of value chains outsourced to their business. An example of that is they collect a lot of data in how they run their turbines and so on, and they have advanced capabilities in doing that. They have the software, they have the algorithms, but other companies don't want to build that capability in house because it's difficult. So they created a business whereby they suck up customer da- competitor data to a large degree, but also a customer data from ancillary industries and they analyze it on a subscription-based model. Whatever savings they generate, they get a percentage of that and so on. That's become a very substantial part of their business, which they call data analytics. Licensing has become a lucrative part of their business. And this client no longer run strategy. They run the data science and services division, which is a part of the business that looks at how they can create sources of revenue using data. And it's all about rethinking their business. Now, he also manages the part of the business that looks at all of the licensing deals and they get a significant part of their money from licensing. They get a significant part of their revenue from data analysis. They even moved into ODM which is they're manufacturing things and removing their logo and allowing other companies to resell that in the market. Of course, they're doing it for some of their lower value added items, but that's okay for them. Beyond revitalizing this client's career, I think if you go back to the first Monday morning ATM insight from this week, all the data is there. All the science is there. All the analysis is there to show people that entering a market is the last resort to extract profits from a market. It's not hard to understand. But the hard part is for this client to convince their board, their management team, and their CEO to go ahead with it. And that's what they've done. But there's even bigger insight here. They're an industry where there's a lot of geopolitics involved. And very recently, some of the operations that they were considering to invest in were hit by sanctions. Their competitors who had entered these markets directly had to sell out at a steep loss. But because they had never entered the market in the first place and were using a series of licenses, they could renegotiate the licenses to legally sidestep contravening the sanctions. They didn't lose any physical assets. There was nothing to close. There was nothing to sell. There was nothing to shut down. So you can think about the enormous amount of goodwill that this CEO has towards this person because, you know, standing up to those shareholders, they could rightfully say, you know what, we're not as exposed to the sanctions because of the way our business is structured. 
And I think, you know, it's a big, big shout out to this client because they've done something quite tremendous. It's not it's always about having the right ideas. You need those, but this client was able to say, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to have these workshops that Michael recommended and I'm going to get my executive team to understand we're leaving money on the table and we're putting too much risk on the table. But because it's much cheaper to do these things and they're easier to manage, they did expand into much more countries than they could have had expanded into if they had simply tried to pony up all the money needed to go in for a direct market entry acquiring assets. It doesn't mean they should never enter a market. No, they should. But only once they've extracted all of the value they could have had without entering the market in the first place. As always, I'll see you next week, Monday morning at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.